Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of April 8th, Quantifying the Quarantine. I'm your host, Dan Creter, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the spread market impact of coronavirus lockdowns and our expectation for how the next few weeks will unfold. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. So, Dan, it's been about a month since our last podcast recording. Unfortunately, the working from home environment impacted our ability to put these out. But now we've got all of our issues ironed out. and We're going to be moving to a weekly format in order to try to stay in front of our investors a little more frequently, at least during these turbulent times. Over the course of the past month, we all know that credit spreads and volatility have hit highs not seen since the financial crisis, and equity markets dropped as much as 33%. But Dan, over the past few weeks, it seems like risk sentiment has turned a little bit. Yeah, it's actually been a pretty remarkable turn in risk sentiment, and it began on March 23rd, and that's the date that the Fed came out and announced some more extensive policy actions, including this corporate bond buying program. And so, and in addition to the Fed's actions, we had the likely passage of a fiscal stimulus bill, which I think the market was expecting, but probably the size and the scope of it was enough that it caused you know a further rally in risk assets. So with respect to the Fed's actions, the Fed was granted $450 billion as part of the CARES Act from Treasury, and they can actually lever that by a factor of 10. So the Fed has about $4.5 trillion to play with just in order to provide liquidity to the market. And as part of that, we have these primary and secondary corporate credit market facilities. And I think just this expectation of provision of liquidity to the market has been enough to cause spreads to narrow by about 100 or more basis points since they hit their wides. Yeah, I think you're hitting on one of the two main drivers. I mean, certainly liquidity was a contributing factor in how wide spreads even got. And the Fed coming in and addressing those liquidity constraints certainly been a good thing for risk assets. But I also think another important driving factor in the recovery in risk assets is the market effectively throwing out March and April in terms of economic growth. The first few data points we've seen that accurately measure the impact of coronavirus lockdown on the economy have been truly astounding. It started with initial jobless claims a couple weeks ago coming in at over 3 million, which was quadruple the previous record. Then last week's print hit over 6 million. I mean, 6 million people in a day. And what did the equity markets do on both of those days? It rallied. I think it goes to show you that the 33% drop that we had in stock markets and the big widening we had in credit markets was pricing in a truly terrible economic outcome for the months of March and April. And going forward, it's going to take more negative headlines surrounding the quote-unquote V-shaped recovery seems to be what the market's pricing for the rest of the year. So the primary threat to risk assets at this point in time lies with headlines that threaten economic growth in May and June, as well as 
projected recovery later in the year in Q3 and Q4. And to me, Dan, that says that what the market's most exposed to at this point in time is evidence that we might be socially distancing for longer than currently expected. Yeah. And just to add to your point about the jobless claims and then the NFP number, to me, what was surprising was not just the sheer number of those, but that each of those were downside misses. And yet the market was still pretty unfazed by these terrible numbers. But I agree. It goes to show that I think the worst possible economic outcomes for March and April have already been priced. And now it's going to be about when is the economy going to reopen and when are we going to start looking past these second quarter of horrible earnings and moving forward. And to that point, the White House has reportedly started talking about a plan that would slowly open pockets of the economy, depending on geographic area. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes trading these markets so difficult. Obviously, none of us here are medical professionals or have any idea what the correct way to fight a pandemic is. Uh, Obviously, none of us know. So none of us have really any read into the path that social distancing will take. But we're sort of forced to take a view, right? If we're trading these asset classes, we have to have some type of view. So we can offer ours with the caveat that we really don't know much about the virus or the way to fight it. But some researchers at Harvard came out with a study that suggests that these large, long, one-time episodes of social distancing may not actually be enough to completely fight off the virus. Now, That's not to say that they're not necessary, because they certainly are. They're necessary from at least two perspectives. First, they slow the spread of the virus right now. We need to pump the brakes on how quickly the virus is spreading immediately. And secondly, it gives the healthcare system time to process all the patients coming in, because obviously, if you have an overwhelmed healthcare system, you risk having unnecessary deaths. So as a first step in fighting the pandemic, you have to have a large period of social distancing widespread throughout the country. The risk there, of course, though, is once people stop socially distancing, when they go back to work, when they reopen the economy, the virus can just then start spreading again. So potentially what the answer is, is to selectively reopen parts of the economy as the government is reportedly now proposing, looking at areas that haven't been hit as hard and potentially putting back lower risk people, the young, the healthy, putting them back into the economy slowly to try to help build up you know, natural or herd immunity so that we can bridge the time between now and when a vaccine eventually arrives. What this implies, though, to me, at least, Dan, is that this means that we're going to have further episodes of social distancing than maybe the market's currently expecting, whether that goes into May or that means that once summer gives us a bit of a reprieve, then we have to go back to socially distancing in September. It's also worth noting here that if and when the government relaxes social distancing, it doesn't necessarily mean that people and companies are going to. But the important point there is that evidence that there's going to be social distancing past what the market's currently pricing isn't likely to come in the very near term. We have to see how virus statistics continue to grow here in the U.S., as well as observe other countries and how virus infection rates develop over there. In particular, we have to be watching closely China, which has now recently reopened Wuhan, now allowing travel in and out of Wuhan for the first time since January. We have to see about the reinfection rate in China, because if we start to see those numbers start to grow again, that would certainly be indicative of further episodes of social distancing that perhaps the market isn't pricing in yet. But the key here is that none of those storylines are likely to come in the next few weeks. It's going to take time for those storylines to kind of play out, which gives us a slant to being risk on here in the very near term where we're not fighting the Fed, riding the wave of optimism that comes from all the stimulus that the central bank and the government has delivered. 
as well as potentially positive virus headlines. But now the question that remains is, have risk assets hit their bottoms? So I do think that for a couple of the reasons you just mentioned, we are positioned tactically for continued spread narrowing. The first you mentioned is the Federal Reserve. So as the Fed continues to provide liquidity to the corporate market, I think spreads are going to continue to move in from these elevated levels they're at. Also, oil has stabilized and there's been some positive headlines on that front. Also, the primary market has been pretty constructive in the investment grade corporate market. So issuance is currently 65% ahead of last year. And while concessions were elevated for some of this stressful point of the last month, they've come down by and large, except for an issuer here or there. But I do think there's another leg wider in spreads that's coming later on in the next couple of months. And that's going to come as the economic fallout from the coronavirus shutdown feeds through to ratings downgrades. And we're ultimately going to have a wave of fallen angels, potentially worse than we've seen in any of the past cycles. So I think that is going to ultimately drag spreads wider. But in the near term, there should be some narrowing. I agree with you, Dan. And that idea is borne out in analysis of previous economic recessions. We typically see a very tight correlation between credit spreads and peaks in default and downgrade rates. And I think that even though we've seen a significant increase in downgrades in the past few weeks, they haven't hit their peaks yet, which would argue that credit spreads haven't hit their peaks either. And it's also important to note that another huge factor behind the recent risk on attitude is the policies implemented by the Fed. But those policies may not actually help companies from a credit standpoint. Isn't that right, Dan? Yeah, that's right. So back to your first point, most of the ratings downgrades we've seen in recent weeks have been in the energy sector. And that's largely due to the shock to oil prices that happened well before the coronavirus shutdown impacted U.S. markets. So there's still a lot more downgrades to come. Now, secondly, with the Fed facilities, I think they do a tremendous job of adding liquidity to the corporate market. But there's a couple shortfalls there that lead us to think that this is more of a liquidity tool than anything that's going to be fundamentally credit positive. So with the primary market facility, the Fed is offering funding in the primary market to eligible corporates, basically investment grade US-based corporates at a rate of 100 basis points behind market rates. So this is not likely to be a facility that's used very regularly by a great number of corporates. And then the secondary facility, as it currently stands, the Fed is only going to buy debt five years and in. So that price is out already about 62% of outstanding corporates in the investment grade index. And by virtue of the Federal Reserve Act, the Fed is not likely to take on a large-scale credit easing campaign, but this is more likely to just be for the purposes of liquidity. Right. The Federal Reserve Act actually requires any extraordinary policies that the Fed implements to be aimed at improving liquidity. They're, according to the law, not allowed to try to explicitly help save companies that need saving. Isn't that right? Yeah. And they're also barred from losing taxpayer money. So that really makes it a dicey proposition that they would go further down the credit curve even into the double B segment of, of high yield. Yeah, we certainly can't say that's impossible uh, given everything that's going on in the past few weeks. It doesn't seem the Fed has a lot of levers left to pull, so that might be one they're forced to pull eventually. But at least as of now, I think it would take a high bar to get them to be going down into a sub-investment grade. So 
The Fed's ironed out liquidity, the stimulus package coming from the Trump administration, surprise to the upside. And I think that's bought us a risk on tone for a few weeks. But as the reality starts to sink in that the Fed's programs don't actually help that much from a credit standpoint, at least most corporations, it's, it's really just a bridge to get through the next three months. And then we find out, oh, but this virus pandemic impact on our daily lives and on social distancing, it's probably not going to end in the next three months. This is going to be something that's happening likely into 2021 when a vaccine is developed. It just doesn't seem like all is well yet. It seems like there's going to be another leg down for risk assets once some of this optimism starts to fade. And and when those headlines start to hit, our expectation is late April or early May. So from a high level to characterize our view, we have a near-term bullish slant, but we think that optimism will fade. So to position yourself for this environment, we like owning a very high credit quality debt, SSAs, agencies that don't have significant room to widen potentially if and when things do turn bad. And given the rally in corporates here, I like a tactical near-term view, but I think we are reaching levels that investors might want to consider taking profits. Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think the higher quality, the better, in my opinion. Taking on anything, you know, triple B or even triple B minus is is really risky at this point, just given the elevated downgrade risk. I think it's safe to assume that no sector is fully insulated from this coronavirus risk. I agree with you, Dan. And another area where some of this credit risk is showing up is in the LIBOR market that remains stubbornly high, even now that the worst liquidity problems in the system seem to be behind us after all of the measures the Fed has taken to shore up liquidity and repo rates are down near the zero bound. It seems like there's very little funding stress going on. LIBOR remains above 1.2%. Dan, how can we explain that? Well, a lot of it has to do with the lack of liquidity in the commercial paper market. So the Fed publishes a daily CP rate. Well, it's usually daily, but they haven't been able to publish a rate since March 26th. And they say that's due to insufficient secondary trading volumes. So I think there's not much getting done in the unsecured term market. But LIBOR is a sticky metric, particularly since the waterfall methodology. So I think it's printed up there for a while now because there's not much of a reason for it to go narrower. Yeah. So even though we've seen credit spreads come in significantly, LIBOR really, it's come in, but not very much. And I think there's a few reasons. What you mentioned, obviously, I agree with. And also the that during the peak of the liquidity crisis, LIBOR was printing well, well below where funding was actually getting accomplished, like as much as two to 300 basis points. So a lot of this narrowing has just kind of brought actual funding levels down in line with where LIBOR is fixing. And then we have to look at now that the liquidity crisis is over, I think we are starting to look at a credit crisis. It's worth mentioning here that a similar pattern played out in 2008, where we had a liquidity crisis, where we saw prime fund assets being drawn down significantly corporations being unable to fund. So the federal government stepped in and actually guaranteed all prime fund deposits in September of 2008 to try and bring some calmness to the market. But LIBOR didn't actually peak until October 31st, six weeks after deposits were guaranteed. And the rationale makes sense. Even if you have deposits guaranteed, or even if you have good liquidity conditions, a money fund manager or a prime fund manager isn't incentivized to take credit risk. There's only downside there. I mean, if you take big credit losses... It's certainly not going to be good for the fund or your communication to your investors. It's just not worth it. So it's similar to what we talked about earlier with the Fed's programs for corporations. There's only so much benefit that comes from liquidity policies. At some point, it becomes a credit thing. And I think that there is still a credit concern out there that's going to keep LIBOR elevated here until people really have a good handle on 
what is the true extent of defaults and downgrades that's going to come from the coronavirus lockdown? And at what point do people feel safe lending their money on a term basis to not just a financial? I realize that LIBOR is set by banks, but those banks have had significant drawdowns of credit lines and significant loan exposures to really the economy as a whole. So we have to start to see more calmness in all areas of the economy before we start to see LIBOR come down. That said, I don't think there's too much potential for further increases in LIBOR, given the announcement of the commercial paper funding facility but from the Fed. that gives corporations the opportunity to raise funds directly from the Fed at a level of OIS plus 110 basis points, plus an additional commitment fee. So it's a punitive rate, but it will be operational very soon. That puts sort of a ceiling on LIBOR. I wouldn't call it a full ceiling, more of a leaky ceiling, but it should prevent LIBOR from going much higher than that. Naturally, as LIBOR has gone significantly higher, so too is swap spreads, which was one of our core trading themes coming into 2020. But now with LIBOR potentially topping out here and maybe falling, what are your thoughts on swap spreads here, Dan? Yeah, I think like you said, we're not positioned yet for narrowing swap spreads, but I think a lot of the metrics that have led us to position for wider spreads have become stretched. I think LIBOR is very elevated and likely only moving narrower eventually. The Fed quantitative easing has really, really helped funding conditions, but we've already started to see increased treasury issuance as treasury funds this growing deficit. And that is going to, in the medium term, start to pressure swap spreads narrower. So I think right now I would characterize us as neutral swap spreads. Eventually, we're probably going to look to see narrower spreads. All right. Thanks, Dan. I think we'll wrap up here. We're making the effort to be a little shorter in the podcast rather than giving a monthly 45-minute episode. We're going to be looking to do weekly 15 to 20-minute episodes here. So we expect our next episode to come next week. And as always, please let us know of any topics you'd be keen to hear, and we'll be sure to discuss them. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macro horizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.